This is Terrify Me. A podcast about scary things in fact, fiction, and folklore. I'm your host, Anthony Frost. This week, I'm joined by a Greek poet and author named Avra Margariti, and we discuss horror poetry, um, you know, writing in both prose and verse forms, Uh, a little bit about her background as a Greek who writes almost exclusively in English, Um, and we also dig into some recent Twitter drama about people writing Greek myth retellings without actually reading the myths. Um, yeah, we, we, we try not to get too heavy with it. Uh, there, are, I wouldn't say this really needs like content warnings of any sort, really, but we do go into things about, um, you know, queerness and feeling alienated and things like that. Um, it's not like the lightest conversation in the world, but neither is it like, you know, a tearjerker or super heartbreaking or anything. It's fine. It's, it's pretty okay, I think. Uh, anyway, that's enough rambling from me. So, let's dig in. Okay, and uh, with me today I have Avra Margariti. Uh, they are a Greek poet and writer of horror and gothic and other lovely things like that. Um, so, just to kick us off, Avra, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, what got you into horror and poetry? Uh, I was always into horror. Even from a young age, I really enjoyed ghost stories. And, you know, in Greece, we have a lot of uh, folk ballads and a lot of oral tradition. And all of that tend to be a little bit bloody and violent. Our folklore, it's it's enjoyable for me, at least. Uh, One of my favorite folk ballads was about a murder wife who was thrown into the foundations of a bridge and then just built inside the bridge. Ooh, nasty. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know a lot about like um, like modern Greek folklore. I mean, you know, like obviously, you know, from like Western Europe. So I studied like Greek myths and stuff in school. But yeah, like modern Greek folklore, I know nothing about. And it's, it's like a whole area that I'd really like to look into at some point. So I think... Um, like with a lot of folk, like is, is, I, I spoke to a few like folklorists and stuff, and um, yeah, it's like the, the richness in folklore in Europe is often like ignored in favor of ancient myths and stuff like that. But there's a lot of cool modern stuff all over the continent. Yes, uh, folklore is a lot richer than people give it credit for. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of superstition mixed with paganism, orthodox. A religion so it's really a mix of a lot of dark elements so um, i guess it's quite easy to sort of figure out what led you into choosing the sort of darker subject matter and stuff like that um did you always with, with your poetry did you always sort of write poetry with these darker themes or did that sort of develop as you went along i started writing poetry when i was 15 and no, I was in, in high school, I was depressed, so I didn't really write horror poetry at the time. It was more just, you know, emo in general and goth, but I really liked the more gothic elements. Uh, 
I enjoyed Edgar Allan Poe, obviously, <laughs> most of poets do. And so afterwards, when I discovered horror as a genre, I started writing poetry of it as well. I did not consider myself a poet until about a year ago. I have no idea why. I always thought of myself as primarily a fiction writer, even though I wrote and published a lot of poetry. I had published maybe 70 pieces in one year and I still did not call myself a poet. 71 years, that's, that's very impressive. Yeah, um, and, and you write it all in English, which is, uh, yes. uh, do you write in Greek as well or do you pretty much just write in English? Uh, not really. I have not tried writing in Greek in many years. I grew up with the internet, so well, yeah. the cringe answer is that first I started writing fan fiction. I embraced the cringe though, so that's not a bad thing. I wrote fan fiction in online sites, which were all of them in English. So I trained myself from a young age to be able to do this. I had some schooling, some English lessons, but it wasn't until I started uh, writing and reading online uh, that I became good at it. And then afterward, I wanted to have a bigger audience. I wanted people to read my work. So international publishing was my go-to option and also wanted to be paid for it. There aren't any paying magazines or any horror or science fiction or fantasy magazines that give authors the chance to reach a wide audience. Mm -hmm. So I just skip it straight to English publishing for that reason. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, this seems to be the case with a lot of different like nations in Europe where they where people just end up writing in English just because it's the like the language of the internet, essentially. Um, so yeah, that's where everything seems to happen. So as, as someone who is both a poet and a writer of fiction, I'm curious, like when you start with like the kernel of an idea, like, do you know whether it's a poem or a story or do you sort of figure it out as you develop it? Uh, I think for me, it is intuitive. I know already what a story wants to be, what, what an idea wants to be, whether it wants to be poetry or fiction and also whether it wants to be literary fiction or genre fiction, because I write both and I use different parts of my brain to write each one. So I know beforehand what it's going to be, how I'm going to approach it. But also when I get an idea in my head, sometimes I like to approach it from different directions. So I'm not really satisfied with it until I have written the same idea in poetry form and then in fiction and then in literary microfiction, which is also another thing that I like to do. Mm. So sometimes the same idea gets like three different uh, aspects that I explore in different categories. Approaching it from every angle to see what works best. Sounds like a lot of work, but it sounds like it could be very interesting. Do, do you find yourself using a lot of uh, poetic devices when you write fiction, considering you write so much of both? I end up using a lot of alliteration in my prose writing. And once someone pointed out that I do this, I hadn't realized on my own. Uh, I started doing it a lot more than I used to. And I have been told my prose is very poetic. So I think that 
fiction and poetry tend to overlap a lot and bleed into each other. So I think when I write prose, I am at the same time a fiction author and a poet. So I end up approaching both with different tools that combine and create in the end something that has a little bit of both. Yeah, I think you, you see a lot with like flash fiction, like um, people like just generally speaking, like people tend to use a lot of poetic devices. Like the shorter the prose, the more poetic people tend to make it, right? Uh, yes, I like sentence fragments a lot. I know people hate them. I know they want complete sentences, but I don't do that. Uh, I, I, I very rarely like will write something that's entirely complete sentences myself. I love fragments. Um, I love fragments. I love internal rhymes. I love alliteration. I, I, I do lots of silly things in my prose. I barely even write poetry, but I just like making stuff from poetry. Um, okay, so the book of yours I read was uh, The Saint of Witches, and I, I got that on uh, recommendation from Elu Carroll, who runs Crow and Cross Keys. Um, and yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. I really liked it. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. One thing I one thing I noticed is that there was a there was a like quite a few poems which were from like the perspective of like a monster or you know something inhuman. And I was wondering what sort of draws you to that like writing in that area. Well, I love monsters. Uh, I think people think that the grotesque is bad, but I always really admired like looking at classical paintings and seeing like demons in hell and grotesque, uh, ugly monsters. And I thought, I thought they were cool at first. That was when I was very young. And then later I started relating to the monster in books and movies and stuff, because for me it has started to become like a metaphor for queerness and identity and otherness and all that. And I started feeling on a personal level, like a lot of the time, the monster was actually right. Sometimes the monster just wanted to be left alone and in peace and just be themselves. And the humans did not allow the monster to do that. So I think uh, I really related to that. And, you know, when you are being called monstrous in real life for who you are, not what you do, sometimes you end up embracing monstrosity and, you know, start acting the way people expect you to because you have nothing left to lose. And that is liberating more than it is restricting, at least for me. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, bisexual and neurodivergent in a area that wasn't necessarily super accepting of either. Um, and I, I definitely identified with a lot of the monsters in fiction. You know, the, the, the first example for me was like uh, the monster in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It was like, you know, I think a lot of us feel like a really strong connection to that particular character. Um, in the collection, again, you seem to have a like particular predilection for like witches and folklore. And I was just wondering where that comes from and how does it express itself in other areas of your life? Like you generally kind of like a witchy person. I call myself a witch in real life and online. 
And sometimes I joke that my gender is witch because for me, okay, like in pop culture, witches are almost always female and they represent in paganism, they are the divine feminine and uh, in fiction and everywhere else, they seem to represent the, the oppression, oppression that uh, women faced. But for me also, it represents gender non-conformity because, and I relate to that on a personal level again, because witches were judged and hunted and everything because they did not conform to the standards of their times. They did not follow all the hidden and spoken laws about their gender and how they should act and their sexuality and how they should express it. So for me, I have always related to that as well. Monsters and witches, they have always been two of my favorite things to, to explore and to explore myself through them in fiction. So this is how the collection started, The Saint of Witches. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's something that sort of grabbed me about the collection was the sort of uh, positioning of the witch identity as like a metaphor for queerness, particularly. Uh, it grabbed me because like, you know, I say this is someone that's been a, like, you know, an on, off again and on again practitioner of witchcraft since I was a teenager, as well as a queer man. like. There is an element of the two going together. I mean, I'm, I'm not like opposed to the idea of like the witch as a feminist icon, but I do think that it's more than that. Like, no, obviously it's it's a practice that people do. And it's also like a lot of queer men were killed uh, during the witch trials. And that's worth remembering. It's worth considering. Yes, I think there are several layers. Yeah, no, you're, you're completely right. There's a lot of layers to the whole thing. There's a lot of layers. Yeah, I think it'd be it's it's reductive to try and simplify it down to any one thing. Like the witch isn't just the practitioner of magic. The witch isn't just the fairy tale monster. It's not just a feminist icon. It's not just a queer icon. It's a little bit of everything. And uh, again, in the in the collection, uh, there, there, there's a few like little areas in there where you sort of delve into some like almost like sci-fi esque ideas. Um, is, is that an area you play with a lot, like in your fiction and stuff like that? Because I haven't read a lot of your fiction. I do write science fiction, but not really hard science fiction. I have my own brand of science fiction usually, which is more alchemy than science, and the science is more magic than science. So like, I do write about space and technology and all that, but I approach it as something mystical, than uh, something that humans are discovering and keep discovering. This is my personal uh, take on science fiction. This isn't a universal thing, obviously, but I enjoy science fiction as magic and alchemy and a marriage of both. Yeah, I feel like um, Star Wars sort of lives in that end of the science fiction camp, right? Where there's an underlying mysticism to the whole thing. Uh, yeah, and oh, what's the one that's the recent one that's really popular, which is sort of like sci-fi, but also fantasy? Uh, Gideon the Ninth? Yes. Yeah. Have you read that? I have not. It's on my TBR list, but you now everyone mm. is yelling about Space Necromancer. 
lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, that was the uh, tagline, wasn't it? Lesbian necromancers in space. Like, yes. It's, it's a great tagline. Can't argue with it. While we're talking about horror poetry, I was just wondering if you could um, recommend three different horror poets for people to check out, who would they be for anyone who's interested in delving more into it? The first one would be Linda D. Addison. I think she was the first one I discovered when I started researching uh, horror poetry collections after I had written my first one, because I spent a few months just buying all the books I could find to do my research. And Linda's work really stood out to me. And I thought it was really relatable. Then there was Sarah Tantlinger. I read her, I have read all her collections, but my favorite was Cradle Land of Parasites, which it was written before the pandemic, but it is about, you know, different eras and different epidemics, pandemics in the world. So it's extra timely now. And the third uh, poet I'm going to recommend is Eric LaRocca. And usually people know Eric because of their novellas, but the first work from them I read was Fanged Dandelion, which is a poetry collection. It's body horror, it's queer, it's extremely weird, and I would definitely recommend that. I, I, to be honest, I did not know that Eric had written a poetry collection, but considering what I've heard about their prose, that does make sense. I haven't read either of their novellas. It's just two at the moment, isn't it? Two novellas. Um, yeah, I haven't read them yet. They're very but, poetic. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Um, but yeah, I, I do need to get around to it. I think the the first one, the one that like really blew up, um, things have gotten worse since we last spoke. I think by the time I got around to thinking, okay, I should probably read this thing, I think it had gone out of print because they were going to a new, bigger publisher. So, so yeah, I haven't got around to it yet, but I need to. I need to check Eric out. It was interesting because one of the criticisms of the book, things have gotten worse since we last spoke, was that people don't speak like that or people don't write like that because it was very poetic. And I was like, no, people do speak like that. I like that part about the book. I think realism in fiction is dramatically overrated, right? I don't think people need to speak like real life people. I don't think people, like, I don't think it needs to be remotely realistic. As long as it's like emotionally true, it doesn't need to be like word for word true. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, well, that's what I feel anyway. Um, and we're on the subject of recommendations. Uh, what are some of your favorite sort of venues for horror poetry? You know, where can people go to read good horror poetry? There is Vastarian, which you could never go wrong with that, by Grimm's Press. Um, Strange Horizon publishes dark poetry, but I don't think they call it horror, but if you send them horror, they are not opposed to that. And I think most science fiction and fantasy venues actually do publish a lot of horror, but they don't really advertise it as much as fantasy and everything else. And also Starline, which is published by the Science Fiction Poetry Association. They have a really dark taste, which at first surprised me because I would send them very dark stuff and gory and bloody guts stuff. And they would say yes. And I would always be so surprised at first because they are mainly science fiction and fantasy, but they love horror. 
So I would definitely recommend them if you have anything dark horror, no, even even gruesome stuff. They like them. Awesome. Good to know. Yeah, I feel like um, a lot of sci-fi places are probably more than fantasy places. Uh, like, you know, if you find a place that only does one or the other. Like, sci-fi tends to be more open to horror, I think. I think like, you know, they, they share a common genesis, right? You know, if you're like H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like, there was a point in time where science fiction and horror were just the same thing. Uh, social media has had a bit of an effect on poetry over the past sort of, you know, 15 years or so. It's sort of like Instagram in particular helped revive or well, popularize certain forms of poetry. Um, you know, uh, what's her name? Rupee something. Uh, yeah, you know, that, that particular style of... That's the one, yeah. Yeah, like the, that particular style of, you know, quite short and simple Instagram poetry. And uh, I was just wondering, do you feel that that had the same sort of effect on genre poetry as it did on sort of more mainstream poetry? I think it's difficult for spec poetry to translate well into the Instagram model of poetry because for me, spec poetry, yes, it's about the language, it's about the imagery, but also it's about plot and character. Mm. So in that aspect, they are a little bit like tiny stories, bite-sized stories. Mm. And from what I have seen of Instagram poetry, it has to be very short. It has to be, I don't know if I want to say simple, but it has to convey a single idea at a time. It has to have an emotion to base around. And although emotions and feelings and the inner world are always part of spec poetry, I think plot and character becomes lost in Instagram poetry because readers just assume that the speaker of the poetry is the poet with Instagram poetry, that it's something that comes from inside and it's just an emotion being put on screen. I, I'd never really thought about speculative po poetry like that, actually, but it makes sense because, you know, obviously you've got to establish the rules of the world, right? It's speculative. There are things in it which don't exist in real life. You've got to establish that. So it ends up does take on a few story-like elements. That's a really good point. I never thought about it. So I'm just wondering, what's next in your writing life? What you, you got any big projects you're working on at the moment? I spent most of the pandemic writing, writing lots and lots of poetry. So I would like to focus on short fiction more now because I have a lot of ideas. I want to finish my horror uh, fiction collection, which is themed around the, the desire to consume and to be consumed. It's mostly about cannibalism and reverse cannibalism. And, you know, it, it has a lot of different takes on those concepts. So I want to finish that. And I also have a lot of finished poetry projects that I'm looking to place with a press. I'm on Saba right now, so we'll see how it goes. Oh, awesome. The, the collection sounds super interesting. Um, yeah. I can't think of a way to phrase this without sounding like a weirdo, so I'm just going to say I really like the idea of cannibalism, like as a story theme. Not something that I would do myself. Um, I don't even eat meat. But, um, but yeah. Same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think vegetarians really like to write cannibalism stories. 
Mm. There's a connection here. We need to explore this at some point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, good, I thought. Good anthology idea, actually. Just get a bunch of uh, vegan and vegetarian writers together and just write an anthology of cannibal horror. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, have you read a uh, tenderest flesh? Um, no, I but I want to. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's such an interesting book. I think it affected a lot of people in a really big way. Um, I quite liked it, uh, but I feel like I read it too quickly. I feel like either too quickly or too slowly, I'm not sure which, because it just felt like a bit sort of like, like it was just hitting me over the head repeatedly. Um, but yeah, it's it's undeniably a good book. Like I, I would recommend giving it a go. It's, it's really affecting. I, I think the author ended up, going vegetarian as a result of writing the book uh, <laughs> which, which is quite interesting cannibalism yeah. <laughs> yeah, cannibalism it's all the cool kids are doing it um so while, while i've got you here i was just, uh wondering if i could ask your opinion on something um so there's been like a little bit of stuff on twitter the last few days about uh like you, you know what I'm going to ask, don't you? Yeah, about like the use of Greek myth by non-Greeks and the profiting of like, but it's mostly like English people and Americans, right? Like, you know, basically making careers off of Greek myth, while Greeks tend not to be able to make careers off of Greek myth. I was wondering if I could ask like your feelings on that matter. I'd, like, I'd just like to open up to being speaking about that a little bit. If that's if that's okay with you. If not, we can just. Scrub this bit out. I have spoken about this online quite a bit, and I think I got maybe mixed reactions. But my opinion is that I'm not trying to gatekeep Greek mythology. I'm not trying to say you should never, under any circumstances, retell a Greek myth. I have read a lot of uh, retellings, especially by queer and BIPOC authors that I have enjoyed. And I think these kind of stories are important. But also, honestly, I am a little bit fed up with these white feminist retellings by Anglophones who end up erasing a lot of stuff about the history of why and how and when Greek mythology became an American thing or an English thing. I think those retellings by Americans and English authors, I don't think they should be forbidden or anything, but I think it should be, you know, standard practice to at least examine why people think they have ownership of Greek mythology. And also I think that there should be at least an effort to include more contemporary Greek authors in anthologies that revolve around Greek mythology. So either there should be some slots maybe left open or some solicitation or invitations I'm not even talking about myself. I could make a list of at least 30 Greek authors who write in English and I enjoy their work. So, you know, we exist. It's just that 
you don't really hear our own voices, stories, because there is maybe this sense of entitlement in white American lead circles that there shouldn't be any move to prioritize Greeks and that Greek mythology is for everyone. Yeah, I mean, just speaking here, like, as an English person, right? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm from Cambridge, right? I was born in Cambridge, live in Cambridge. Uh, and because of that, uh, at my secondary school, because it's in Cambridgeshire, there was an option to study Latin and ancient Greek taught by Cambridge University, which I did. So I interacted a lot with ancient Greek myth as well as Athenes, like ancient Greek, the language. None of which I remember now because I'm, you know, that was half my life ago and I'm not that bright to begin with. Uh, but like th th there is a general sense in England that the classics, you know, open cloak, close cloak, the classics are a part of our heritage, right? Like, you know, Greek language and myth and Roman language and myth. Um, and it's interesting how that came about. Like, it, it, it's weird, right? Because obviously I'm not a Greek. I, I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's strange that it's viewed as part of our heritage when um, we're on the other side of the continent. And I've, uh, until quite recently, I never even thought about how strange that is. Yeah, so, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to engage with our mythology as long as it's done in a respectful way. Uh, and also as long as it's acknowledged that Greek mythology did not originate from nowhere. There was a place of origin and that place and the modern Greeks still exist. Mm -hmm. So I would love if there was at least an effort to acknowledge that yeah. when people are talking about Greek mythology. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, like the, it's been a big push for sort of like own voices storytelling in many spheres recently, um, but not in sort of reimaginings of Greek myth, which is strange. I feel like that's a gap that's not been filled. Like, it's like a little gap in the whole own voices thing. So, do you, you, you said that you could list off some Greek writers who write in English. Um, at some point, would you be able to like email me a list of people and I'll sort of see if I can spread that about a little bit? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Yeah, so that would be quite cool. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's like one of the areas I'm passionate about is uh, like sort of the different areas of culture and folklore within Europe and sort of people being able to say it themselves. Like, I really hate the concept of, like, whiteness and Western culture. Like, this idea that we're all just one blob. Like a monolith, and, you know, the different cultures are not allowed to tell their own stories or to have a cultural identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like you have to sacrifice being whatever ethnicity you are to be a white person, um, which is just messy and horrible, in my opinion. Um, like, you know, we're not... Like, Europe isn't, like, one culture. Western culture doesn't exist. Like, it's a, it's a fictional idea. It's interesting because, you know, people keep telling me that I should not complain about this because ancient Greece was the, the golden 
child, I don't know, of Western um, civilization. But with modern Greeks, we are not really considered part of Europe. Until we joined the European Union, we were not considered to be like an important part of Europe where we were, we were in the Balkans and we were considered not worthy of uh, having our own myths and our own statues and our marbles and everything. So the West had to come and, you know, elevate them for us. We couldn't do it ourselves. There was this uh, misconception, which is better now, but it is still prevalent, I think, when we discuss Greek mythology. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about like a little bit since I've like seen the discourse on Twitter, like the idea of just, you know, the like the fact that all of like all of like white like Europe and sort of like white culture in general feels like it owns Greek myths. And I, I, it's easy to forget that Greeks are still right there. I think people do forget. Yeah, it was interesting with this particular discourse because there was a lot of outrage aimed at that author who didn't who hadn't read the Odyssey. And everyone who was mad was either a Greek superfan or a classicist, but no one thought to ask, what do the Greeks think? Do Greeks exist? Are we here? No one thought to ask. So I just, I spoke up because no one else had thought to ask me. So I just, I decided to do it myself. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you did because it gave me a lot to think about. And I do, I do think it's important that, you know, just as a sort of culture, as a sort of international community of writers in this sort of non-realist speculative realm, we try and you know, be considerate of one, each other, one another as much as possible. And a part of that is respecting one another's cultural traditions and not playing fast and loose with it. You know, yeah, that's it. Um, I've pretty much run out of things to say. Uh, <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say before we end the call? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we covered everything. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great. Thank you. See, I'm really glad Afra came on and had that little discussion with me. Uh, the last part, I feel, was especially important. You know, uh, I think what they're saying about just being respectful of other people's cultures when you're borrowing from them and just remembering that there are people still alive who have links to that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a good rule of thumb for any culture you want to borrow from. Like, nobody's culture is fair game, in my opinion. Like, nobody's. Yeah, except your own. Right? Obviously, that's fine. But, yeah. Anyway, um, so when Avra gets back to me with, like, her big list of Greek authors, I'll put that up on my website and... Uh, I'll make sure there's some links to stuff as well. You know, if I can track down any free online stuff of theirs to read, I'll do that. I'll make a big thing of it. I need to do more stuff on the website anyway. Um, yeah, so there were some recommendations from Avra in there. Uh, they recommended, you know, three authors slash poets and three publications for like poetic, dark and scary things. Uh, so I'll, as always, add a couple of my own onto the list. I've been reading Blind Sight. Um, by Peter Watts this week 
uh, with the Howl Society, and I'm I'm very behind the group reading because I'm an incredibly busy human being. Um, but it's absolutely fantastic so far. I'm about forty percent of the way through, and it's it's amazing. If if the rest of the book is crap, it's still worth reading it just for the first forty percent. And I don't think it will be crap for the record. Yeah, it's an incredible, like hard sci-fi with strong sort of horror undertones. It's the kind of sci-fi that like it makes you worry about the future. If you know what I mean, <laughs> that's a it's a really sort of existential dread-inducing sort of sci-fi, which is what we like. Um, uh, in terms of listening, let's see. Uh, Ye old crime podcast uh, episode one hundred two is about sin eaters. It's a very new one. Uh, yeah, that's worth a listen. Um, I think we discussed sin eaters briefly on. Uh, my Satan Loves Shropshire episode with uh, Amy Boucher. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting little bit of English historical culture. Um, yeah, so it's, it's cool listening to it from the perspective of like a total outsider. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I think that about covers it for me this week. As always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Terrify Me with Anthony Frost. The theme music is by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com and used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at TerrifyMePod, all one word. For more from me, visit anthonyfrost.com or follow me on Twitter at AnthonyRFrost. That's Anthony without an H. See you next time.